0: This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Advertisements for solar panels on AM Sports Radio aimed at Joe six-pack are a sure sign that sun power is going mainstream. And the sales pitch is working. Half of American homes with solar roofs are in California, and thousands more are added each week. California sunshine will grow even more powerful under Governor Brown's plan for the state to get half of all of its electricity from clean sources by 2030. The big utilities are on board, but startup companies say they're trying to cast a shadow on them and some cities are scrambling to get in on the action. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guest today is Tony Early, CEO of Pacific Gas and Electric, one of the largest and cleanest power companies in America. With our live audience at the Commonwealth Club, we'll discuss California's push toward renewable energy, the outlook for coal and other fossil fuels, electric cars, and what individuals can do to reduce their carbon footprint. We'll also discuss the deadly explosion in San Bruno and what PG&E is doing to improve its safety and reputation. Tony Early took the helm at PG&E in 2011 after nearly two decades with Detroit's power company, DTE Energy, where he was chairman and CEO. He's also a former chairman of the Edison Electric Institute, the power industry's trade group. Before we begin, I should also say that PG&E is a financial supporter of the Commonwealth Club. Please welcome Tony Early. Thank you. So welcome. Uh, I'd like to describe a day. I went by your office yesterday. I didn't get a chance to see you, but I went uh, to PG&E yesterday and I saw this really interesting scene that I think captures what we're going to talk about. There was an electric car, a big solar panel, lots of information about uh, PG&E's uh, renewable energy, and then there was a group of a couple hundred people, uh, some of them wearing uh, Solar City another uh, you know solar uh, a company t shirt saying you're not doing enough. You're trying to stomp on their business and what struck me was you agree on the direction, climate's bad, solar's good, but there seems to be a, uh, some tension around costs and who pays. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, it was kind of ironic that that was going on yesterday because this week we hooked up our 200,000th uh, rooftop solar uh, customer. Uh, so we've been making tremendous progress. And, in fact, what you saw that that we had <clears throat> some tables for our employees where uh, we have incentives for our employees to sign up uh, for rooftop solar. So it, it, was, it was kind of a funny juxtaposition of the protesters, and we're working to keep increasing the number of solar rooftop units we've got.
0: Yeah, the cops look pretty bored. You they actually agree on lots of things. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about, Governor Brown has a plan. You're on board with it. 50% renewable energy in the next 15 years. Um, how are you going to get there, and are and consumers going to pay more for it?
1: Yeah, and, and it's a visionary plan, but it, it makes sense. So the, the current target of 33% Uh, by 2020. Um, All the utilities are going to make that. We're going to cross 30% uh, this year. We were 27% uh, last year. Uh, And we've got contracts um, that are lined up, projects that'll get us to to the target very easily. Um, We actually would have preferred a carbon reduction target because the reality is what you want is to reduce carbon, however you can get there. And we had done a lot of work to show if you have a mix of renewables, more energy efficiency, more electric vehicles, you can probably get the optimum from a cost standpoint. But we've also done work to show we can get to 50% renewables. It may cost more than if we said, well, let's do 45%, but we'll do more energy efficiency. But you know, a lot of that is projections today of what's going to happen in, in 2030. And the reality is, if you told me you know, five years ago where, that the cost of uh, solar panels would have come down so much. I would have said, no, they're just not going to do that, but it is. But uh, I, I think the plan certainly is doable. It'll be a combination of uh, solar panels, some, some wind, and maybe new technologies that, that come along.
0: So at the heart of the debate over the cost is there's a pg and proposal, which uh, I guess right now, according to the L.A. Times, the average savings of a solar homeowner uh, is about $110 a month. That would drop down to $90. So they, the solar ho- homeowners would save less. So why is that necessary? And uh, industry is concerned that's going to hurt solar adoption. Mm-hmm. People are not going to go solar if they're not going to save as much.
1: And, and the key here, the, the issue here is paying to upgrade the grid. We've got to invest in the grid. And when you think about it, it makes sense. The the, the grid was... The basic design was early 20th century. Uh, And it was pretty simple then. You just had big power plants. You threw power in one end and you took it out the other. And any good electrical engineer could calculate the flows and the voltages and the things like that. Well, think about it today where you've got rooftop solar units dumping electricity in all over. You've got big solar rays and wind farms uh, out in the desert. Uh, And by the way, they're not predictable because if a cloud goes over, if it ever does rain in California again, uh, if a cloud goes over, electric production drops, and then it will come back up. So it is a much more sophisticated system, and so you need much more sophisticated monitoring and devices. But you've got to be able to pay for that. And so a lot of this is around making sure solar users, which actually are very large users of the grid, they're sending power out, they're taking power in, uh, you need to have more sophisticated controls, it's making sure we've got the money to pay for upgrading the grid to a 21st century grid.
0: And the other part of this is to reduce the amount of money that solar co- solar owners, uh, homeowners, uh, get paid for the electricity that they send into the grid. Why is that necessary? Yeah, so
1: there. I mean, there are a couple of ways that, that you can uh, have people pay for the grid. It could be a model, and some utilities uh, have proposed this way. You just have a rooftop solar fee. So it's kind of like your cable fee, where you you know you pay a monthly fee for your cable, whether you actually use the cable or not, because They've got to maintain all of all of their equipment. Um, we took a, a slightly different approach, and we said, look, we're getting electricity from the customers. It costs us money to generate that electricity, so we'll pay them what it costs us, because your electric bill is really made up of two big pieces. One, it's the cost of the electricity, and the other is the cost to maintain the electric system out there. And so we'll pay customers for the cost of electricity, and then the differential will be, they're paying for their part of the of the grid upgrades that have to occur to accommodate the sophisticated equipment that's on it.
0: Probably a smart idea not to affiliate yourself with a cable company. Probably one company <laughs> that consumers like less than the power company. That's why we company. didn't choose that. That's yeah, why we was, didn't choose
1: that model. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah,
0: we like the cable company. Love us more. Okay. Um, Let's look nationally what's happening. There is a lot of... Uh, I heard uh, an executive from Sunrun Solar say there's about 40 uh, initiatives around the country to kind of put the price or push back... What the solar industry says is push back on solar. Uh, so look nationally. You headed the Edison Electric Institute. Uh, where is solar viable, and where do you think that other renewables make more sense?
1: Yeah, well, clearly California, Arizona, um, you know, the Southwest, uh, it's very viable. Um, there are probably some parts in the southeast, although you've got a lot of rain and cloud cover uh, there. Um, but we're, we're at the heart of of where solar makes sense. Wind is, of course, the other big alternative. The upper Midwest, very strong in terms of wind. Problem that the upper Midwest has, even though they can generate a huge amount of electricity, they don't have many people, so you've got to build very expensive transmission lines to get it to Chicago, Detroit, wherever you want to send it. Uh, and while the electricity may be cheap from the wind, it costs a lot to get it to the to the load center. So I think the interesting thing uh, is, you know, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency has come out with what they call a clean power plan. And uh, while there are questions about whether they have the legal authority under the Clean Air Act, actually their model works. They basically said each state, look at the resources that you've got, Look at where you are in terms of your carbon emissions and put together a plan to figure out what the best mix is. And you can take into account, you know, so do what costs the least. Do what you think uh, you can do best. Put together a model and and submit it to us. We'll take a look at that and give you some feedback on it.
0: Is this a partisan issue? In Texas, there's something called Green Tea, the Tea Party that uh, supports uh, uh, solar roofs, green energy. Uh, Is this a red state issue? You were in the Midwest.
1: Is there anything that's not partisan these days? Yeah. Uh, I, I in, in kind of one of my standard stump speeches, I usually say electrons aren't blue or red. <laughs> um, this should not be a politically partisan. It is probably uh, a geographically partisan mm-hmm. issue. We actually used to see that when, when I used to, uh, and I spent a lot of time in Washington on these issues, and you would find coalitions put together across party lines. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's developed now is you can't do anything across uh, party lines because, um, you know, just is that difficult. But it really is more geographic than anything else. Let's talk about
0: affordability. Uh, uh, Julian Castro, the Secretary of Housing, was here a few months ago, and he noted that clean energy, renewable energy, is often uh, thought of with the, associ- with the coastal elites, Berkeley, Boston, Boulder, Boulder not being on the coast, but the- with the elites. Uh, and how can clean energy be more affordable, uh, accessible to renters and people who are lower income?
1: Yeah, and, and we're looking at that through a program that we're putting together called our Community Solar Program, um, because... Not everyone can afford uh, solar. Not everyone has a house that can handle solar. You don't have a big rooftop or you live in a multi-family dwelling. Uh, and so our concept is that we would put up small to mid-sized solar uh, uh, panels and solar arrays uh, that then customers could contract with us and say, like, we want renewable power, and, you know, we'll build these units and sell them to customers uh, that otherwise couldn't afford a solar array on that. Or they could buy, you know, some of their requirements from uh, renewable resources.
0: There's uh, solar co-ops out there, the idea that people kind of buy a share. I talked to someone in Texas a couple of weeks ago in Austin who was talking about building a, a big solar, and you could buy into, buy a share of it, and then you could kind of trade it, and if you move around, you could, it could go with you. Can you see that kind of innovation happening? Yeah, in I mean,
1: I, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting, and you know, with the, the proliferation of people with great ideas on applications... Uh, I think we're going to see all kinds of innovations like that. It's going to be fun.
0: And the smart grid, what what does that mean? That's a term that gets bounced around a lot. Uh, I mean, uh, the old grid is dumb, smart's a word. Yeah, I I love that
1: because, you know, if you talk to 10 people, even 10 people in the industry and say, what's a smart grid, you'll get 10 different uh, uh, opinions on it. But what it really is is using technology to make the grid more efficient and more effective in serving customers. And I'll give you a great example of this. Um, So, as you know, in California, uh, we have, quote, smart meters, Um, and these are basically meters that have a small computer and transmitter, so originally thought, well, utilities will save some money because they don't have to go out and read the meters, and customers will have real-time information about how much energy they're using so they can manage their electricity usage. And... That was you know that, uh, good, and that it's all true, and you can manage your usage. In fact, you can even hire somebody who writes different applications. If you see a really cool app, you can send your smart grid data, and they will put them into their app and tell you, you know, how you can be more efficient with electricity. But then we discovered, you know, these meters tell us a lot about the system. Back before we had them, we didn't know you were out of electricity unless you called us up. And so if there was an outage at four o'clock in the afternoon because a storm went through. We didn't know till you got home and called us. Well, we discovered with these meters, we know the meter tells us, hey, I'm out. Uh, so we know to mobilize our trip before you even call. In fact, we might even get your electricity back before you even, even get home. Then we found, oh, we could attach that information coming from the smart meters, and we could send it right to our switching gear And if there are 1,000 customers out, we could switch around so that only the 100 customers nearest where the the failure happened are out. And so you can think of this as now the grid is getting smarter, uh, and I think we're going to see all kinds of innovations as new technologies come along to be able to make the grid smarter and faster and more efficient.
0: Those benefits are all on what's called the outside of the meter or the the, the utility side of the meter and one of the criticisms of, uh, of smart meters is that it wasn't clearly articulated what they do for customers. What does it do for me inside the home? One thing is uh, Microsoft and Google made a run at this kind of thing uh, with a couple of efforts to allow people to understand you know, how much energy their toasters using, that yeah. sort of thing. Those both flopped. And one of the tension points, I mean, are we going to see that come back?
1: I, I think so. Uh, and with as I Nest, said, we, ha- we have... Um, you know, the customer. Our customers have the ability. If they see an application they think is cool, they can send their smart meter data to them and, and use it for that that application. Um, and yeah, you know, Nest is a perfect example. Um, my old company, DT Energy, has actually uh, developed uh, an algorithm that customers can use that can tell them. Uh, in fact, this is a neat one where you can go around and it'll tell you whether. Uh, you're using more or less than some of your neighbors, and you can actually, as a device, you can go around and figure out which appliance is causing the, the problem. So you're going to see a proliferation of, of all of these things.
0: One of the critiques of utilities is that they're not data companies. They're big industrial companies and in that they don't know what to do with the data. Any relative? Yeah, rel- and,
1: and I think, um, two, one is we know we've got to hire data scientists, and we're, we're doing that. When we go through our analysis of skill sets, we need. we need more people who understand how to use the data. But the other is um, that, as I said, uh, we have the ability, our customers can send their data to whomever they want.
0: And the utilities of the future, there's a lot of talk about utilities being in in a death spiral, that they're challenged, that their customers are now becoming their competitors or suppliers. Does that fundamentally challenge what the business model of
1: utilities it certainly changes the business model i don't view customers becoming competitors they're more partners and they'll customers will decide what part of the energy chain they want to play in do they want to be in the generation business i don't really utilities don't make any money off the generation i mean the cost of generating electricity is just passed through for the to the customer it is what what it is uh and so we see us as partnering with customers going forward. What we have to do then is make sure that our system, so our grid, can accommodate uh, all of these new technologies. So our opportunities are in investing in Technologies that can run the grid to accommodate all these new technologies going. So
0: forward. you're a poles and wires company rather than a build a big billion dollar plant. Uh, I think.
1: I mean, you know, we'll, there'll still be some large generators on the system. Um, as I used to say when I was in Michigan, you can't start a coal roll steel mill with a solar array. Uh, the laws of physics. I mean, a lot of people don't know it. If you unhooked, if you have a rooftop solar and you unhooked from the grid, your air conditioning unit wouldn't start because, you know, in your air conditioning unit, the, the lights flicker a little bit. Well, that's because the utility all of a sudden is sending all kinds of surge power to get that motor going. Well, when you've got a solar array, the sunlight doesn't change just because you turned on your central air conditioning unit, and it'll either, your lights will dim, or if, you, if you're if you dim enough, you burn out your whole system. Uh, and so uh, I don't think that... Um, I mean, utilities are going to have to be partners in this and are going to have to invest in a grid that you know, keeps the system going. And we'll need big generators on the grid to kind of keep the momentum going.
0: People in San Francisco don't have air conditioners, though. The way things are going, they might be reaching for them uh, pretty soon. Yeah, you about uh, climate change. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to roll a clip. We have uh, a past guest here, uh, Hank Paulson, talked about this. I want to get your response to what he says about climate as a business risk. Let's look at, listen to Hank Paulson. Well, climate change, I think, is a very difficult issue to deal with. It is... You know, I think the biggest risk is not just to the global ecosystem and the environment. It's the biggest economic risk we face. So but that's we a... tend to deal with issues uh, nationally when there's an immediate crisis rather than there's a longer term issue. So that is Hank Paulson, former secretary of the Treasury, former head of Goldman Sachs, saying that climate is the biggest business risk we face.
1: It certainly is a very real business risk, and you look at—you can look at all kinds of examples uh, of that. I mean, so what happens to sea level? Um, any of you have been over to the Exploratorium uh, in their new location up there in the observatory? They actually have a topographical map where you can push a button and it'll tell you what happens if sea level rises one foot, two feet—I think they go up to four feet—and show you the coastline of the bay, and it changes. And there are a lot of places that you know, people live and work will be underwater. Uh, so that's one example. I mean, agriculture. Uh, we're finding today our agricultural customers, uh, a year or so ago, a lot of them started complaining about their electric bills were going way up. And we went out, did a lot of analysis and worked with them. Part of it is they've got to drill their wells deeper in order to, and they've got to pump water more often. And so they're pumping more and their pumps work harder because they got to drill deeper. I mean, So that's a business risk for them.
0: And how does it affect... uh, PG&E has a lot of hydro, we're in a drought, a lot of fires that affected electricity supply in San Francisco during the Rim Fire.
1: Yeah, so all of you have been impacted. Um, In a normal year, we generate about 15% of our electricity from our hydro system. Our hydro system is very efficient, generally very low cost. Uh, Last year, I think we were at about 8%. Uh, generation uh, probably be about the same this year I, I think we probably spent a couple of hundred million dollars last year going out and buying power on the market to replace that hydro <clears throat> that we couldn't couldn't generate and as I said that just gets rolled into the the power cost that that shows up on on your bill so people are seeing the impact already
0: so what can we do what can PGE do to kind of prepare be uh, stronger to bounce back from those things
1: well, you know, a number of things is with – I talked about the agricultural uh, customers. We're working with, with them on more efficient pumps and motors to minimize the, the impact. Um, you know, on, on the hydro system itself, I mean, we, we're looking this year at um, an El Nino year. Uh, everyone is predicting a pretty strong El Nino, which will help. Unfortunately, the predictions are it will be more rain – than snowpack, and for us, our system is a very low environmental impact system. We have a number of larger dams. Most of them are run of the river, which means you just kind of scoop uh, water off the river to run your plants, and so the storage is not a dam. The storage is the snowpack, and without the snowpack, uh, you're not going to be able to generate it. So you make up for that. We'll be working with our solar providers and... um, contracting for more solar projects going forward to get the right mix.
0: If you're just joining us, our guest today Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Tony Early, the chairman and CEO of PG&E. I'm Greg Dalton, and it's time for our lightning round, a series of uh, brief uh, yes or no uh, questions for Tony Early. The first one is, Julia Roberts did a fabulous job playing Aaron Brockovich in the movie about contaminated water in a California community. Yes or no?
1: Ah, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and when I, arrived, when I arrived here four years ago and I, I sat in a meeting and people are talking about dealing with that issue and I go, when was that movie made? Why are we still dealing with it? But uh, We're actually making some good progress there. Hinkley was quite a while ago. Yeah.
0: Uh, next question. California's laws favoring clean energy over fossil fuels have helped generate new jobs and technologies.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Autonomous cars are cool and a little unnerving. Having been
1: in one, yes.
0: And uh, Tony Early, as I said, Tony Early is on the board of Ford Motor Company, and we'll talk about personal mobility in a little bit. Uh, You support Governor Brown's goal of reducing petroleum use in California as part of the state's climate action plan.
1: We support reduction in carbon, and we think electric vehicles have to be part of that. So, yeah, there have to be a reduction in gasoline use.
0: Tesla has a hot bod.
1: They have a cool car. (laughs) Uh,
0: Your predecessor, Peter Darby, was a champion of clean energy, and he showed leadership by taking PG&E out of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in 2009 because it opposes action on
1: climate. Um, Yes, he did that.
0: (laughs) Do you think that PG&E, do you wish you were
1: part of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce? Uh, You've got to work. They are a player in Washington, and, and we deal with them and work with them. We work with a whole bunch of other things. You, you, this whole thing about, well, because of one thing, you're not going to play ball with them, that's the problem. But you've got to work together. These are hard issues.
0: You are still working to repair the damage to the company's reputation caused by Peter Darby's tenure as CEO. Uh, yes. The California Public Utilities Commission under former President Mike Peavy got a little too cozy with utilities it regulated.
1: Boy, that's (laughs) a—can I take the fifth on that one? (laughs) Um, I mean, there were issues on, on both sides that really needed to be fixed.
0: The fact that burning fossil fuels is disrupting the climate is an accepted fact in most corporate boardrooms.
1: I think we're getting to a tipping point where I would say yes to that.
0: Even in the good old boys in the coal industry and the utility industry?
1: In the utility industry, yeah. I, I can't talk speak for the coal industry as such, but it clearly is true in, in our industry.
0: Certainly the biggest corporations, Ford, Walmart, General Electric, yeah. there's no dispute that it's And, and it's even happening. the
1: traditional big coal-burning utilities, my old company, DTN, Southern Company, I mean, Southern <clears> Company just is in the process of buying a natural gas company because they want to phase out their coal plants. They've also gotten very heavily into the renewable space. Um, so people are saying, we've got to change. Fracking for
0: natural gas may have serious impacts on water quality and human health.
1: No, not if you drill the wells right.
0: There was a Johns Hopkins study recently uh, that found a correlation... Not a causation, but a correlation between premature birth and proximity to drilling operations. Looking at ten thousand pregnancies in Pennsylvania, um, before the San Bruno explosion, PG&E should not have diverted funds for gas pipeline safety to pay executive bonuses.
1: Um, that, that just didn't happen. I mean, it, you can question whether the company over the years had invested the right amount in their pipeline business, as the same way you questioned, did the Public Utility Commission give the company enough money in their rates, Um, but it had nothing to do with with executive bonuses.
0: Okay. See, The Utility Commission President, Mike Picker, made that comment. California is replacing Michigan as the center of innovation in the auto industry.
1: I think we're seeing interesting synergies. So you're right. I think every automaker is in Silicon Valley. Many technology companies have moved to Detroit. In fact, the downtown Detroit area is is booming with technology companies because your car is a rolling computer. There's more value in the electronics and computers in your car than there is in steel.
0: There was a New York Times story recently that said how many millions of lines of code there is in a car, and it's more than all of Facebook. There's more lines of code in a new modern car than all of Facebook. So it is a hugely complicated. Uh, Last one. In your heart, Tony Early, you were rooting for the Detroit Tigers when they played the San Francisco Giants in the 2012 World Series. Yes, I was. (laughs) All right. how do you do? I think you did pretty well. That's the end of our lightning round here with Tony Early. And now, here's a climate one minute. Tech companies like Apple and Google have spent plenty of time and money to get your loyalty. But beyond making sure the lights come on, your local power company has never had to do much to keep your business. David Crane of NRG Energy says that dynamic is changing thanks to a new era of consumer choice. For the longest time, people have had no choice of where their energy comes from. Historically, it's a state-granted monopoly, and the fact about monopolies is if, if, if your customers have been given to you and no one has the right to compete, you don't really you know, prioritize giving them what they want. And, and it's been an article of faith in the American energy industry that whatever we can produce, the American public will consume. So we don't have to, we don't have to stimulate demand. We don't have to care. We just have to produce it. And uh, for a variety of reasons, the, the, the gas boom, you know, the unconventional fracking, the, the, the dramatic reduction in the cost of renewable energy... We now actually live in a world of energy abundance, and when you have abundant supply, people should be able to make decisions about where they want their energy to come from. That was David Crane, CEO of NRG, speaking with Climate One in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guest Tony Early of PG&E at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Let's stay with the cars, because Apple is reportedly coming into the car industry, this industry uh, that was kind of shrinking, almost dying six years ago. Google's doing autonomous cars. Uh, It's a very exciting time. You're on the board of Ford Motor Company. Where is this going?
1: Yeah, it is kind of ironic. I joined the board of of Ford in early 2009, which, of course, was just a disastrous time. And if you told me then you're going to have everyone in Silicon Valley wants to be a car maker. I would have said, you're absolutely nuts. But it it is very exciting um, because this, I mean, the the American desire to to be mobile and to get around, and they love their cars, marrying that up with technology, uh, I mean, we're (laughs) going to see some tremendous changes. And a couple of years ago, I thought, yeah, you know, this whole thing about autonomous cars isn't going in, but everybody's working on it.
0: Another innovation is uh, Lyft and Uber. Bill Ford actually uh, I- invested in Lyft. Uh, with, if people Does that challenge the industry when people don't need to rent a piece of metal that they it depreciates in their garage and sits around idle most of the time when they can just tap their thumb and hitch a ride?
1: I think it challenges it in a way that the industry has to think about uh, it's not going to grow a million units a, a year. Uh, And it's amazing. I mean, this year will probably be a record year, or close to it, in the auto industry in the U.S. Almost 18 million units, Uh, up from you know in the depths of the of the recession was probably 12 million uh, units. So amazing rebound. Um, The Chinese are now at 28 million units. Uh, But what we're I think going to see is those growth numbers will start to flatten out because cars you think about it, are very inefficient. I think the average American drives about, they spend about an hour and a half in their car a day, so the other 22 and a half hours, it's just idle. And like any business, if you can figure out ways to more efficiently use the product, that's good for the economy in the long term. Now, for, for the automakers, the, the technology that's going in, these cars will be far more valuable,
0: if you're just joining us, we're talking with Tony Early, Chairman and CEO of pg e This is Climate One from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, so what does that mean for electric vehicles? Ford seems to have not placed as much of a bet on electric vehicles. They kind of doubled down on the internal combustion engine with the, the EcoBoost, which is a turbocharged engine. Some other companies have placed bigger bets on electrics. Uh, how do you see, are they going to be a niche, or electrics going to be mainstream?
1: No, and, and in fact, Ford has three or four electric models that have been very successful. I'll tell you a quick story. So we did an incentive uh, for our employees to um, buy electric vehicles because we think if our employees aren't out there driving them, why should anyone else? Uh, and I worked with both GM and Ford, and the deal we cut was if you give us the employee discount that you give your employees for 30 days, we'll match it and offer Ford and GM products uh, between volts... Um, Ford Focus electrics and Ford plug-in CMAXs, we sold over 700 vehicles to our employees to the point where every Ford uh, Focus west of the Rockies had been bought up by a PG&E employee. Is
0: there a future for hydrogen? Or is that the fuel fuel of the future and it always will be? It always
1: will be. You were talking to Bill Ford, weren't you? (laughs) Uh, It's a challenge. And I I was a co- Founding director of a fuel cell company called Plug Power uh, back in 1997. We co-founded it with uh, General Electric, and it's just really hard. To, it's one of these technologies uh, that's hard to move along. And then you think about the infrastructure. You know, people complain that there aren't enough uh, plug-in stations for electric vehicles today. Uh, And yet you can go home in your garage and just use your 110 outlet. I charge my CMAX in a 110 outlet in the garage in our apartment building. But if you have a hydrogen vehicle, I think there are 12 hydrogen filling stations in the state of California. Um, While I'd like to think hydrogen is going to be very helpful, it's, I think, a long time off because that infrastructure piece is hard.
0: Electrics are here and now. The New York Times had a story recently about plug rage, that there's not enough plugs for drivers to plug in and people are yanking their plugs out and getting in scuffles and there's a, there's a, a plug-in etiquette kit where they get... Uh, Tags you can put on someone's, plug in my car, this sorts of stuff, which says there's not enough charging. As an EV driver, yeah. I find there's enough for our Nissan LEAF. What are you going to do to make charging more accessible so EVs can continue Well, to a-
1: after we sold these 700 vehicles to our employees, then we had to have a program to install another couple hundred charging stations around our system. Um, but statewide, we really need to have a big push for charging. Uh, all three uh, major utilities in the state, ourselves, SoCal Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric, have proposals in front of the Public Utility Commission that significantly up the availability of charging stations. So we've proposed uh, that over the next five years we'll install 25,000 charging stations in northern and central California. Now, that's still estimated as only about a quarter of what the market will actually need, um, but it certainly will be a lot better than where we are now.
0: Uh, NRG is an independent uh, energy company, actually one of your large suppliers. They're trying to have their own system for charging systems. They think that there's some debate about who should pay for those chargers. And if you do it, will people who don't drive EVs be subsidizing the EV dri- Tesla drivers?
1: Yeah, so I look at that, that charging stations ought to be part of our grid infrastructure. That's like saying, well... People who have smaller houses are, are subsidizing people with larger houses that need a larger transformer on their circuit. I mean, it's just part of how you build a circuit. Um, and so I, I think that as we modernize the grid, part of the modernization not only is putting new high-tech monitoring devices, but we ought to be putting, if we're building, a, rebuilding a circuit in a commercial area, we just ought to put the infrastructure for charging stations there. It's not a matter of subsidy. That's what a 21st century grid ought to look like.
0: And who should pay for the juice and how much? Well,
1: everyone who uses the grid. Uh, And, in fact, the interesting thing is, although today the charging stations are to give electricity to the vehicle owners, in the future it may be the vehicle owners giving electricity back to everyone on, on the grid.
0: The vehicle-to-grid, the idea that the, right. the battery, uh, when it's hot, you can grab power from someone's electric car yeah. rather than turning on a yeah, dirty... to peaker, knock
1: down the peak if they're not driving the car.
0: Because those peak plants are dirty and they're yeah. expensive. Uh, uh, Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant is the last one in this state, 50 years of nuclear in California. Uh, Rancho Seca was shut down, San Onofre was shut down. Uh, you've applied to relicense Diablo Canyon. Are you going to keep running it?
1: Well, when you think about it, so here's a state that um, is really concerned about carbon emissions, and we've got a plant that produces 2,200 megawatts, which is a large amount of like 2,200 megawatts of carbon-free electricity. From the big-picture standpoint, it makes absolute sense. Now, there are a lot of things that have to be done. Uh, you know, the, the plants are licensed through 2024 and 2025, we're obviously behind the scenes working on what needs to be done. We would actually submitted an application before um, the Fukushima uh, earthquake. Um, it was put on hold. The NRC is since now reopening that, that proceeding. Uh, you know, and we haven't made a formal decision yet about whether we we're going to throw all our resources behind it. We don't need to make that decision right away. But you know, when I think about it, um, it makes sense to keep carbon-free electricity in California.
0: It's an oceanfront facility, so there's a tsunami risk. It's near an earthquake fault. Uh, could a Fukushima happen at San Onofre?
1: Well, in terms of the tsunami, uh, it's way high up on a bluff. We've done all the uh, tsunami risk is is not a, a risk there. Earthquake, yes. And in fact, um, there's a big earthquake in Virginia about four years ago, and every nuclear plant in the U.S. had to go relook at all of their seismic analyses. Uh, As it turns out, the California plants actually had a lot of safety margin because we knew we were near seismic uh, risks, whereas a lot of the eastern plants have a smaller safety margin. They they all passed but had a smaller safety margin because they weren't designed that way. And even though new um, faults have come up, one of the things the NRC has looked at is, so are, are these new faults, do they change our thinking about the design? And all of their studies so far say no. This was pretty robustly designed.
0: Will we see a nuclear renaissance in the United States? There's, what, five plants under construction now. Uh, it is carbon-free, but they are very expensive. The cost of other energy has gone down. The cost of nuclear is going up.
1: We, we, we've seen um, the f- you know, future of nuclear change a lot. Early on in my career, I, I actually started in nuclear submarines in the Navy um, and then went on to was licensing plants where they were licensing plants all over. And then they, they stopped. Then there was talk a couple of years ago of a nuclear renaissance. The reality is a lot of Americans don't. There are five nuclear plants under construction in the U.S. right now, Uh, two in Georgia, two in South Carolina, one in uh, Tennessee. Um, They're very expensive to build up front, Uh, talking $8 billion, $10 billion a a copy. And yet once you get it built, they're carbon-free and they're... Pretty inexpensive actually to run it data. Uranium prices are, are very low and are not particularly volatile. Um, so I don't see that you'll see a nuclear renaissance. I, I think in those states that are still have a regulated electric business where they can take a longer view and not depending upon what the market price for electricity is next week or the week after that, you'll see plants dribbled out, but I don't see you think you're going to see a major construction cycle. And it's unfortunate. Chinese are right now building at least a dozen plants. And every year they bring five, six, seven plants online. The fact that they don't...
0: Uh, did I hear you say they really can't compete in an open marketplace? They have to be in a kind of a regulated cage where the regulators kind of...
1: Where, where you have a long time, because these are these are 40 to 60 year assets. And so if you figure out, okay, here's what it's going to cost to run the plant for 60 years, and we'll charge... You know, an amount so you can think of it as like amortizing your mortgage, uh, and you know, if you have that kind of environment. But if you depend upon, well, I'm only going to get this much this year, and I'll get enough next year, and then it'll drop back down. It, it's hard. It means, you know, but like your banker wouldn't give you a mortgage if they don't know what your income is going to be in any particular year.
0: You're just joining us for our talking at Climate One today with Tony Early, CEO and Chairman of pg I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to podcasts of this and other programs on the Climate One website. Uh, let's talk about San Bruno. $1.6 billion dollar fine for the deadly gas uh, explosion there. Re- federal regulators said it was a flawed pipe, flawed operations, and flawed oversight. And there's been some criticisms even since then of what PG&E's been doing. So what are you doing to uh, restore trust yeah. and faith?
1: I mean, it, it was a huge tragedy. Uh, eight people lost their, their lives there. Um, since that time... Uh, Company has invested billions of dollars in upgrading its natural gas system and, and we 're still not done with it. It, it This is a huge system we 've got seven thousand miles of high pressure gas pipeline, tens of thousands of miles of, of local distribution lines um, i mean we We have pressure tested um, hundreds of miles of pipe we 've replaced pipe uh, one of the key things we 've done is a lot of the pipe was Install. So the, the San Bruno pipe was installed in the 1950s. Back then, they didn't have these remote technology. We now have equipment, and you can think of this as remote cameras that you can put in the pipes and go through <coughs> it and inspect it, x-ray it, uh, get all kinds of data that gets fed back to you so you know the condition of the pipes. But pipelines that were built in the 50s and 60s aren't designed to take these pieces of equipment. So they've got very tight turns or they've got changes in diameter. So we're actually going in... And fixing some of that so that we can remotely inspect large parts of that pipe. But you know we're not done. It's going to take a number of, of years uh, to do that. And we know that, I mean, short of going and digging up every foot of pipe that's in the ground, you'll never know. We're doing the best we can to give the best assurance that uh, this system is the safest in the U.S. And one of the the measures of that is there there is a an international standard. Uh, it's actually two standards, uh, ISO 55,001, and there's a, one called a publicly available standard, which is used more in Europe. Uh, and we had an outside group uh, called Lloyd's Registry that comes and looks at a company's system for safety and certified us under these, these standards, which was a big milestone, because if you told me when I got here a year after San Bruno occurred that within three years we'd get the certification, I would have said, no, not going to happen, but we were able to do that.
0: San Francisco next year will have a choice. Uh, that Clean Power SF is going to offer a choice to San Franciscans like people in Marin and Sonoma, and increasingly around the state. Uh, do you support that choice, or do you oppose uh, Clean Power now, SF? Our,
1: our position there is we just need customers to understand what choices they are making. Uh, and so you know what the power sources for other, what the relative costs are. Um, in a weird way, there, there is a limitation. We're really not even allowed... To market ourselves versus others. Um, so I see one of my lawyers down here looking at me, going. <laughs> uh,
0: and, and that rule was put in place uh, because uh, pg and tried to get uh, a statewide ballot initiative. Privately. Actually, the
1: rule was put in place I think before, before that. that. Before, yeah, before that, yeah, that was that was that was a different different okay. issue. But um, the uh, but again, I go back to what I said. We don't need to be in the generation business. So if you want to buy from someone else, you can, you can buy from someone else. Because those, those aggregators like Marin, they, they still use our wires and pay the fee, fees to use, use the wires. So we're kind of neutral. But I just think customers ought to be told, what's it going to cost? Is it really cleaner or not? Cleaner power.
0: Uh, We're going to go to audience questions in just a minute. I want to ask you what kind of cool technologies you see out there that are really exciting. We talked a little bit about smart homes, autonomous vehicles. What else is out there that you think could really change the way we uh, power our connected lives?
1: Well, yeah, autonomous vehicles, I I think, uh, are one of the ways we can do that. From our standpoint... um, the the understanding we have of the system, so we call it a self healing grid. I talked a little bit about taking the data from our smart meters, but now we're developing technologies that basically we don't have to don't have to send crews out there. Um, it'll it'll largely fix itself, uh, and that's kind of cool technology. Even things. So this summer we've had the uh, the wildfires. We got some really cool technology. It's it's called LIDAR, so it's laser radar that we can fly over all of our lines and not only tell whether there are any trees uh, that are lying on the lines or too close to the lines, you can actually tell by the amount of photosynthesis in the trees whether it's a healthy tree or not. It matters because normally trees that fall down into your wires are dying trees, so you want to know which ones are healthy. and You can just fly over our system and know, okay, we got to get that tree, that tree. It's pretty cool technology.
0: We're talking about the future of power with Tony Early, chairman and CEO of PG&E. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our audience questions, invite your participation. Welcome to Climate One. My concern goes to San Bruno. I remember seeing you and hearing you talk about how apologies and uh, we're going to do the best we can, we're going to make sure everything is done as right as can possibly be. And then on the financial pages the news pages, I see it where the attorneys and the, uh, the accountants are trying to back off everything, save, you know, save every bit of money for PG&E, reduce the tax liabilities under uh, the fines and all kinds of other things. question is, which is really the truth? We're going to do everything best, or it's, it's the same old business of, of our bottom line?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think the truth is we've got great employees. Uh, we're committed to doing the right thing, and in fact an amazing story mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't recognize. So post-San Bruno, obviously there are a lot of people who were hurt, people lost their houses. Every single one of those victims uh, were compensated uh, in under three years. And the judge, in fact, at the hearing where he approved uh, all of the payments uh, for individuals said he's never seen a case as complex as this settled in that period of time. And part of it was the company just said, look, we're responsible for it. We'll s- step up and we'll s- uh, settle these cases with, with the victims." So we've been committed to doing the right thing.
0: You're going to challenge the $1.6 billion uh, fine?
1: No, we just we're not, a- not appealing that. And it's not all a fine. A lot of it is, okay, you just need to do work on your system uh, and you know, not charge the customers for it. And, and we're doing that as well.
0: Next question, welcome to Climate One. Hi, thank you. Um, I've read that there's land subsidence from um, the fracking and from the collapsing of, of aquifers from the well uh, drilling that people are doing in the valley, especially. How is that, af- and also earthquakes, how would that affect the infrastructure, especially like pipelines?
1: Uh, yeah, it, any kind of change in um, the underground uh, Structure, you know, is a concern. Uh, I am not aware of any hydraulic fracturing going on near our pipelines, and we monitor our our rights-of-way uh, pipelines, and we look at people are doing whether whether it's excavation or fracturing. I am not aware of it. It, it could impact it. Um, earthquakes. Uh, One of our concerns has been in earthquakes, you're going to have movement of pipes, so we've installed lots of automated valves so you can shut off the pipes faster. Um, But ground movement can have an impact.
0: Next question. Welcome. Uh, One of the obstacles to reducing peak load is that it generally costs everybody the same amount amount of money to get a certain amount of power at any time of the day, so there's no incentive to run your uh, pool heater or your, your dishwasher at a different time. Uh, PG&E introduced the smart rate program in order to, to allow people to change the, the rate they pay based on what the, the load is at that time, but it dramatically dropped off in terms of new signups ups uh, in the past year versus 2013. Is that a sign that uh, the public is not engaged on this issue, and how can we get more people to uh, 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 become engaged with it?
1: Yeah, we will be launching into a major effort on uh, time-of-use rates uh, and in, in fact you 'll see it between now and two thousand and eighteen ramping uh, up uh, different sector commercial sector, residential sector uh, and there will be a big push on for uh, time of use rates so that, the, that... the interesting thing is that you know traditionally the time of use was at night you wanted people to use electricity and during the day and particularly in the afternoons not to use it. One of the things that we 're studying is what is the peak load period because these days with all of the solar out there, we actually have excess electricity during the day and we may want to shift the time of use rates so that maybe during the day you get lower rates. At night when the sun isn't out, um, it it may be more expensive to generate electricity. So it, it be, it's going to be a very interesting time.
0: What are the top three things that an average consumer can do at their home to reduce their energy use? Smart things.
1: Well, whenever you buy an appliance, make sure it's an, an energy efficient appliance. Uh, have your kids turn off the lights uh, at the at the house. Um, you know, and uh, if you're in the Central Valley where you have air conditioning, it's insulating the house and making sure you have an efficient air conditioning unit because that drives the the. Five hundred dollar bills in the Central Valley. As I said earlier, energy efficiency is the best thing you can focus on. It's, it's the most cost effective thing. So you know, do one of those energy audits, uh, and then go through the checklist and insulate the house. Uh, you know, patch up holes. Do do the things that are recommended because they're relatively cheap and they will save you a lot of money. Next question. Thank you. Um, you referred to uh, nuclear power as uh, renewable or clean energy, meaning no greenhouse gases. But it takes enormous amounts of uh, concrete to build these plants, and concrete is uh, the development of concrete is a huge carbon dioxide emitter. So do you take into account the whole life cycle of greenhouse gases when you consider building a nuclear power plant? I think if you're going to build a new plant, you do that analysis. But once the, the the plant's already built, it's it's there. So uh, when I say it's it's clean, it, it's built, and you know it's delivering electricity without any additional uh, greenhouse gases.
0: Welcome to Climate One. Talking with Tony Early from PG E. Given that the average state has a D-minus rating for their grid uh, uh, quality. How much would it take to get California's grid up to 21st century standards and what percentage of that would be raised through PG&E's net metering and fees proposal?
1: So I take issue with I mean some people say that we don't have a 21st century grid that it's a third world grid. We have the best grid in the world and I will argue with anyone around that. Now it's not the grid we need to accommodate all the technology out there. So All these people who say, well, we've got a third... third Third-world countries would kill for a grid like ours. Uh, Those of you who ever travel overseas, and particularly to developing countries, uh, know that. But we have new technologies are coming around every day, uh, and that's why we need to make sure the resources are there so that we can continue to upgrade the grid to account for all the new technologies that we're going to need to drive off that grid. Think of it as the Internet. When the Internet first started... It was a couple of scientists sending their technical papers back and forth. It was pretty simple. Um, remember the dial-up modems that you used to have? Mm-hmm. And think about where it is today. Everything can be done on the Internet, but think of how much companies like Cisco and others had to invest in the infrastructure to support that. And that's what we need to be doing over the next 20 years is continuing to invest in the infrastructure. And if we don't, 20 years from now, we're going to say, what were those guys back in 2015 thinking, and why weren't they investing in that? And so my advice is do it in pieces. Start today and start investing over a long period of time, because otherwise you're going to have sticker shock. Uh, And like anything else, if you have sticker shock, you're going to have backlash, and then we're going to be bogged down and not make the investments that we need to make to be successful. Welcome to Climate One.
0: Hi. Hi. So you talked about how the price of PV panels has really plummeted in the last few years. Something else that has dropped dramatically is battery cost, and specifically home battery storage. And Tesla, as you probably know, came out with a home battery uh, installation. And the, the case of Hawaii is interesting in that they, the utilities there started putting more regulations on rooftop solar. And my understanding is a lot of homeowners in Hawaii just disconnected from the grid. And I'm curious if you see that as a threat, given that you have stated you see yourself more as a transmission utility instead of an energy
1: Creation usually. Yeah. So where um, battery pricing is today, um, it's not really really viable. Now Hawaii is different. Hawaii has very high electric rates um, because up until recently very dependent on imported oil, uh, and so battery storage became more feasible. And here in California, we we actually have a request for proposals out there for proposals on batteries on our system. We're evaluating the the bids right now, and we're going to be installing batteries. But I will tell you that the numbers that we're getting, not many people would want to pay that to have a battery big enough to supply your house and and go off the grid completely. And what you use the battery for is to knock down your peak demand uh, rather than being able to supply your load uh, all the time. Uh, so you're going to see batteries are going to be part of this technology mix.
0: Let's have our next question for Tony Early at Climate One. Hi, Tony. Rahul here. My question is regarding batteries again, particularly uh, related to uh, grid-scale storage. Uh, Swiss company Alevo uh, claims that their, co- their factory in Concord can uh, generate 16.2 giga- uh, gigawatt hour of uh, electricity, saving $12 billion a year for, for the companies. And, and also Tesla's factory. So how seriously are we considering uh, the possibility of using these grid-scale storage to save money for the end consumer?
1: Yeah, our, our our request for battery proposals uh, included a request. It could be grid-scale. Uh, it can be um, our circuit-scale, so just r- locally, or it could be customer-scale, so our, our individual houses. Uh, and we're going to be evaluating those technologies And it doesn't. uh, That doesn't sound for me that they bid in our our proposal. I'm not sure why they didn't bid in if they've got a great great technology because we're looking for all different things. Because quite honestly, none of us know which technology is going to work. I mean, it's kind of VHS versus Beta. Nobody knew back then, and you know we we still don't know which battery technology is really going to be the best.
0: Some uh, investors say that microgrids are a technology that could get California to 100%. Do you think microgrids can work, and can California get to 100% renewable in the foreseeable future?
1: Um, Microgrids are an interesting concept. The, uh, The funny thing was back, remember, the first big blackout was in 1966 in New York City. I remember that because I was about ready to go to a college fair. I was in high school. Uh, And uh, the reason they had it was each state was its own, quote, microgrids. States weren't interconnected with each other. And then after that, there was a big push to interconnect the U.S. And now microgrids are going back the other way. Microgrids um, are probably going to be a balance. You're going to want to have them interconnected because if your microgrid breaks, you want to get electricity from the one next to you. But they do provide you some protection from cyber issues, uh, physical security uh, issues, uh, and uh, they may be a way to incorporate more renewables on it. But, you know, we're all still working on how that uh, that will play out.
0: Let's get to our last question for Tony Early.
1: Good evening, Tony. Um, with community choice aggregates proving to be
0: um, less um, dirty ways to generate power and PG&E wanting to be more of a transmission company rather than a producer of power. How are you promoting CCAs, um, specifically within the California Senate, which there are repeatedly uh,
1: battles against CCAs?
0: CCAs, Community Choice yeah, Aggregation, where communities can yeah. get into solar, the, the energy business to compete, offer a choice to PGD.
1: So, I mean, we are neither promoting nor opposing. They are what they, they are. We are certainly the cleanest investor-owned utility in the U.S. There may be some like Bonneville Power Authority and others that, that are, are, are cleaner. And even though we may not be building new generation, uh, we've got to buy, buy generation from clean sources. And what we normally do is we go out and we contract with a developer of a solar farm or a wind farm. So we know that we're actually getting clean power. Uh, and we're actually creating jobs because we're signing a 15- or 20-year contract, and then they go out and use that to to build the plant. And so that's what we'll see in the future. As we up our amount of renewables, we'll be signing more contracts that people then can take to the bank and finance these projects.
0: We have to end it there. Our thanks to Tony Early, Chairman and CEO of Pacific Gas and Electric, for talking about powering California's future here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks to our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and online and on air. We'll see you next time. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.